Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have the privilege today of introducing a lecture that was given at Beeson Divinity School in 2007 during our Reformation Heritage Lecture Series by Professor Gwenbeyer Walters Adams. I first met Gwenbeyer some years ago when she was studying for her Ph.D. at the University of Cambridge in England. She completed her study on late medieval spirituality, doing a book, Visions in Late Medieval England, Lay Spirituality and Sacred Glimpses of the Hidden Worlds of Faith. The lecture we're going to listen to today is about Martin Luther, how Luther's story turned the world upside down. It was well-received, and you're going to enjoy listening to Professor Gwenvire Walters-Adams speaking on the Reformation, how Luther's story turned the world upside down. Let's listen. What a delight it has been to be with you this week. And thank you so much for your warm hospitality. It's just been such sweet fellowship in the Lord being amongst you. Well, we come to our final session, and I want to ask you, do any of you remember the series called Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman? Yeah, I see some nods. Uh, It was a drama set in the Wild West featuring the beautiful Jane Seymour as a medical doctor. It was lovely, uplifting family viewing much of the time, but there was one episode that captured the attitudes towards stories and truth in our postmodern world. I don't know if any of you saw this particular episode. It was when the pastor of the village church started a school for the Native American children. He unfortunately lacked cultural sensitivity, and he made the children line up in rows and wear shoes, etc., which was not the, the best cross-cultural way of doing things. Uh, the chiefs of the tribes heard that he was about to baptize their children in the river without parental permission, which again is somewhat questionable. Uh, and rushed to the riverside to stop the baptism. They dismantled the school, and they set up one of their own. And they gathered all the children in a circle, and they went around the circle and had each child give his name, the name of his tribe, and what his tribe taught about how the world began. Now, the pastor was leaning against a tree, looking rather forlorn and chastened. And then the lead chief graciously invited the pastor to join the circle. He sat down, and when it was his turn, he began by giving his name, and then he started to present with authority the creation account from Genesis. The chief looked at him questioningly. The pastor stopped, and then he began again, saying that his people were from England and that their story about the beginning of the world was dot, dot, dot. You see the difference? The scene encapsulates our predicament today. When we tell the gospel, it is often heard as one story out of thousands, with no more and no less validity than any other story. On the positive side, stories entertain. They foster community. But on the negative side, the Foucaults of this world argue that stories that claim to be the truth are inherently abusive. The idea that a story could transform one's world entirely and for the better, that a story could somehow tap into absolute truth, shape one's worldview in accordance with ultimate reality, 
This is highly suspect in our culture. Now we're going to spend this final hour of our Reformation Heritage Lecture Series examining how the shifting understanding of the scripture story exerted tremendous power and how the change in understanding of the Bible story radically changed one man's life story and how that man's life story then changed the face of Christianity. Stories and how we interpret them can have eternal implications. Now, after examining Augustine's life, first looking at the stories that he heard or read that shaped his worldview, and second, focusing on the events of his life story that impacted his theology, we now turn to Martin Luther. A thousand years after Augustine's death, finds us in medieval Christendom, a world whose foundation was laid in many ways by the prototype of Augustine's life story. And we will study that world through the life story of Martin Luther, perusing a dozen events in his story that illustrate how Augustine's views had set a trajectory that ended in the lay piety of the Middle Ages. Now, there is a sense in which what Augustine converted to, Luther converted from. So what, con- what Augustine converted to, Luther converted from. And I'm going to suggest that Luther's life story became the counter story to Augustine's life story and therefore shaped the Protestant Reformation. Now, at Luther's funeral, his friend and co-Protestant reformer, Melanchthon, traced the history of the transmission of biblical truth through five people, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Paul, Augustine, and Luther. Isn't that interesting? You said that biblical truth had been transmitted through just five people, and two of them, for our purposes, it's interesting, that the two extra biblical names are the two figures we are examining this week, Augustine and Luther. Now, of course, Augustine did not single-handedly shape Luther's world and early theology. There are at least five qualifications we need to make. First, he was not the only early church father to influence the late medieval world. Chrysostom, Origen, Jerome, Gregory, Benedict, and many others were quoted frequently. Secondly, a major movement in the 12th and 13th centuries added an Aristotelian layer on top of Augustine's Neoplatonic framework. The scholastics, as these scholars are referred to, were more speculative than Augustine, trying to connect the dots between every theological concept. Third, in the 15th century, humanism emerged, and it drew proponents back ad fontes to primary sources in context. And the fourth qualification is that the late medieval theologians did not teach a monolithic theology. They argued amongst themselves. It is more accurate to refer to medieval theologies rather than one monolithic medieval theology. And fifth, Augustine's own theology was not monolithic. It changed over the course of his life, and not all of it was adopted by the medieval world. In fact, when the Reformers started arguing against the Catholic scholars and theologians, both sides used Augustine's writings against the other. And in some ways, the Reformation was an argument between Augustine and Augustine. Uh, Roland Bainton, the late Luther scholar, goes so far as to suggest that, quote, almost certainly Augustine himself would have been proclaimed a heretic had he lived and refused to submit to the subsequent modification of his system. But what I want to argue is that the world that Luther was born into was a world that reflected the values demonstrated by Augustine's life story. The lay piety grew out of Augustine's life story, particularly his conversion, the climax of his story, and that the Protestant world reflected the values demonstrated in Luther's life story, 
We could narrow it even further to say that in both cases, it was the climax and the change in life that it brought about that shaped the piety and core values of the people groups that followed each of them. So that's the central thing I'm going to argue today, that it was the climax, the change in life that that climax brought about that shaped the piety and core values of the people groups that followed them, that is, the medieval world and then the Protestant world. What came out of Augustine's life story were the following values. He had entered a life of sexual obsession and secular ambition, and through his conversion ended up with a theology marked by at least ten views that shaped the medieval world. Communal monasticism, mysticism, asceticism, celibacy, synthesizing with Greek philosophy, sacramentalism, ex opere operato, wheat and the tares, infant baptism, baptismal regeneration. Those were some of the things that ended up shaping the medieval world. Now, Luther's life story, you can see with Augustine, there's a shift from the time of the pear tree to the fig tree. The pear tree kind of marks the time where he entered into this ambition, sexual obsession, this philosophical search, and then the fig tree uh, where he enters into the ones on the other side of the column. And Luther's life story starts off in the world that Augustine's had shifted into, and so that column shifts over to the before picture, uh, which Luther entered fully into with the lightning strike episode that we're going to talk about. And then uh, with the episode we're going to represent by the door, uh, he shifts, actually it takes him some time, to shift into the things that are on the other side, the vocations for all, marriage, justification by faith alone, sola scriptura, the literal interpretation of scriptures rather than an allegorical interpretation, grace from Christ um, rather than primarily through the sacraments, and et cetera, et cetera. So there are going to be two shifts that we're looking at here. So Luther's life story is deeply rooted in the world that came out of Augustine's life story, but rises above that world to set a whole new paradigm. Now we begin with, we're going to deal with 12 stories today uh, in Luther's life. And we start with story number one, and this is the lightning strike. And we could call it the extreme makeover. Uh, Luther landed in a monastery because of a thunderstorm. And the story goes that he was caught in the wind and rain and a lightning bolt attacking the ground too near him for him or his horse to retain their composure. Thrown off the said horse, Luther screamed out to St. Anne to save him. And he would pay her back by entering a monastery. Let's see, here we've got the lightning strike. Uh, this is not a picture of the actual lightning strike that um, he saw. Uh, he survived the trauma and force of the storm, and true to his word, he left his legal profession and became a monk. Now, this story presents a striking contrast to the pear tree episode in Augustine. The storm launches Luther into his lifestyle of extreme asceticism. The pear tree marks Augustine's early time in his lifestyle of sinfulness. Their pre-conversion lives are thus diametrically opposed. Luther is entering a long period of living under what he would later refer to, in essence, as law. His conversion would free him and catapult him into the realm of gospel. Now, Augustine's pear tree marked his entry into a long season of being, in effect, the prodigal son. And his later conversion would throw him into a strange state of becoming almost like the older brother in the uh, prodigal son terms. Now, in Luther's terms, it was as if Augustine entered the realm of law. Uh, technically, Augustine would have argued against this uh, on theological grounds, but his lifestyle 
and especially the medieval piety that would grow out of it, seemed to place people back under law. Thus, Augustine's and Luther's conversion stories move in radically different directions and become paradigmatic for those who follow them. At least that's what I'm proposing, so you can see what you think. The second story is uh, that Augustine becomes a monk after a I mean, Luther becomes a monk after Augustine's heart. And it involves Luther's fulfilling his vow to St. Anne and becoming a monk. An Augustinian monk, no less. There were many different kinds of monks, but uh, he becomes a monk in the order of Augustine. And being a monk was regarded by many as the most certain way towards heaven. The vows of obedience, chastity, and poverty, as well as the asceticism which many of the monks practiced, were regarded as meritorious. Asceticism included fasting, flagellation, that is beating or whipping oneself, sleep deprivation, wearing hair shirts. Uh, those were horse hair worn with a rough side into the skin so that it would chafe and bleed. Uh, op- the opus day or daily offices and the hours in reading, these all added up to one's credit. Luther would say later, I was a good monk and kept my rules so strictly that I venture to say that ever a monk could get to heaven by monkery, I would have gotten there. All my companions in the monastery who knew me would bear me out in this. For if I had gone on much longer, I would have martyred myself to death, what with vigils, prayers, readings, and other works. So Luther lived his time as a monk very, very seriously. Melanchthon wrote of him, He himself also gained self-mastery by the greatest severity of discipline, and he far surpassed the others in all the exercises of readings, disputes, fasts, and prayers. He would go for days of fasting and eat very little even when not fasting. This intense physical, spiritual, and emotional pain that his monastic experience brought him would lead him eventually to a very strong rejection of monasticism. And after his conversion, he would teach that monks did not have a higher way to God, some sort of singular vocation, but rather that all Christians had vocations, from farming to motherhood, from merchants to pastors. And I think that is one of the key lessons coming out of the Reformation, that we need to be careful not to forget. And to, as those who are called into, quote, full-time ministry, we need to be careful that we, that we make sure that the people that we serve who are involved in the marketplace uh, and in other forms of ministry know that their lives are meant to be vocations as well. Now, that brings us then to story number three. And this is the quaking priest. And it has Luther becoming a priest. And it's his first mass where Luther is about to offer up elevate the host, which was the key moment in the key liturgical act of the medieval church, and that was the Mass, and the key moment was the moment where the host was elevated. Why was he so afraid that he shook uh, at this moment? Well, it had to do with the theology that was being taught at that time about what was happening at the moment where the priest raised the host. And that was the doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, Augustine would not have technically argued for uh, transubstantiation. That was a technical term that was brought about by the scholastics, who were following Augustine in that they were synthesizing Christianity with Greek thought, but the particular body of Greek thought that they were synthesizing with was not Neoplatonism, as we saw with Augustine, but rather it was Augustinianism, and uh, not uh, Aristotelianism. Sorry. 
And uh, Aristotle had written a book called The Ten Categories, which Augustine had read, and he mentions it in the Confessions. And Augustine was very proud of himself, patted himself on the back for having read it on his own and figured it out without any help from anybody. And uh, so he brags about that a little bit in the Confessions. Now, the ten categories for Augustine ended up being something that made his conversion to Christianity actually more difficult because what Aristotle had taught was that everything in the universe could be analyzed according to ten categories. And what you had was the, the first category was the essence of something, and then the other nine categories were all the things that you could measure, touch, taste, feel, say about where it, where, uh, what action this thing was involved in or what action was being done to it, uh, how big it was, all that kind of stuff. And that applied not just to concrete things, but it also applied to abstract concepts. And this is what caused a stumbling block, amongst many others, for Augustine on his way uh, to Christ. And that was that even God was believed to be able to be analyzed by these ten categories, and God somehow was a thing and um, could be analyzed this way. And it wasn't until Augustine learned that actually uh, God was a spirit and didn't have to be a substance that he was set free to be able to come to Christianity that taught that. But the way that the scholastics took this and integrated it with Christianity, this idea of substance and accidents, as it came to be known, the things that could be measured about something, was that they took the sacrament of the, of the Eucharist and they said that with the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that when you had the elements, when the priest was holding the pre-consecrated elements, what he had in his hand were just human uh, material they were human, but they were material objects, the, the host, which was a wafer, and the wine. But after the moment of consecration, which is where the priest would elevate the host or elevate the chalice, and he would say, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. And it was believed that there you could talk about the substance and the accidents as two different things. And as far as I know, that's the only time in the history of philosophy where these two things were regarded as not um, <laughs> attached, as it were. Because what happened was it was believed that the substance changed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ and that the accidents, the the, what you could taste and touch and feel, that those remained the host and the wine. So... Transubstantiated meant that, meant that the thing was transubstantiated, that substance changed. And that meant that it became Christ. And the logical thing then was for Luther to be petrified, right? <laughs> because at that moment of elevation, he believed that he was now suddenly holding Christ, literally, in his hands. And I think it was very appropriate that he be scared <laughs> um, at that moment, and he was. Now, uh, later, Luther would still hold to the real presence, but he would not hold to transubstantiation. Uh, he would also change a number of other things that the medieval world had held to. Uh, for example, they had only given the laity one kind, just the host. They would not give the uh, wine to the laity. They also uh, had the laity receive the communion only once a year at Easter. They also held a view that the Mass was a sacrifice. Now here the 
the scholastics had some discussion about this. Was it that Christ was just shown, that his sacrifice was just shown forth each time? Or was it that Christ was actually re-sacrificed each time? And there were some that argued that he was, that it was actually a re-sacrificing of Christ. So uh, Luther would uh, reject the Mass as sacrifice. And he would no longer believe that Masses could serve as a form of penance. The vast majority of Masses that were being said in the late Middle Ages were ones that had been purchased by people to be said specifically to get the souls of particular people out of purgatory faster. That was the vast majority of Masses were being said for that reason. So he would reject that um, aspect of the Mass. So the Mass was no longer a meritorious work. Instead, it had almost the opposite meaning for Luther. For Luther, a sacrament, by definition, had the promise of forgiveness attached to it. So rather than being a sacrifice reoffered time and time again, Christ's once and for all sacrifice was sufficient, and the source of that forgiveness, the promise of which was nailed to the sacraments. So a very different way of looking at the sacraments. The other reformers would propose a variety of theologies of the Mass, uh, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, Communion. I mean, the, the names would change depending on who was talking about it. Some, like Zwingli, would tend towards uh, more of the symbolic view and that it was not a sacrament. Um, Calvin would teach that the believer was lifted up into Christ's presence and that there was grace somehow involved in this. Uh, but all of them would agree that the Mass or Eucharist or Lord's Supper or whatever was not a sacrifice and that it was a gift, not a work um, that was done by the believer. That brings us to our next story, and that is uh, One Relic Too Many. And this story, number five, involved saints, or more precisely, the bones thereof. Now, I don't have pictures of bones up there, but they are available. <laughs> you, can, you can look at bones of saints today. Uh, Frederick the Wise, Luther's soon-to-be protector, acquired the thumb of Saint Anne, Actually, that was the least of it. Uh, Frederick went on to gather together a huge collection of 19,000 fragments of all sorts of saints, from apostles to holy virgins, etc. It took, by the end, nine aisles of display space. And a pious pilgrim venerating the saints through uh, Frederick the Wise's collection could obtain almost two million days of indulgence that meant two million days less in purgatory for going through and um, venerating at the different 19,000 fragments. Luther took saints pretty seriously. Remember, when he cried out for help during the thunderstorm, he called on a saint. Alistair McGrath points out that St. Anne, who was the one he called on, was the patron saint of miners, and Luther's father was involved in copper mining. So Luther was probably accustomed to hearing his father pray to St. Anne. It was common for medieval Catholics to turn to the saints for aid in times of trouble. It wasn't only during your life that you could do this. Uh, a popular prayer to Mary promised that if it was prayed daily, Mary would then appear to the prayer uh, in plenty of time before that person's death to let them know when they would die so that they could make the proper you know, preparations to be ready to face death. After death, the treasury of merit could be applied uh, through indulgences to one, crediting the extra merits of the saints to non-saint Christians. So there was believed that there was a treasury of merit, that Christ's merit and all the extra credit 
that um, saints had earned during their lives went into that and that it could be meted out uh, by the Pope uh, through indulgences. So the communion of saints in the Apostles' Creed was interpreted as involving this sharing of saints' merits with the ordinary Christian. Luther would turn against this idea and reinterpret the communio sanctorum. He shifts the idea from heaven down to earth and from the canonized official saints uh, to all Christians. No longer should one turn to the canonized saints for intercession or for the transfer of merits. There was only one mediator, Jesus Christ, and all Christians had direct access to him. And we need, we need to not take that for granted, <laughs> you know, that we get to have direct access to Christ. Um, we don't need extra mediators between us, and we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, story number five, the stairs of fear and doubt. In 1511, Luther went on a five-month trip to Rome, and he seems to have been there on business related to his monastery. A key moment in his sojourn involved his ascending the holy stairs. And again, this is not an actual picture of them. This is meant to be more evocative of stairs of fear and doubt. It's kind of a dark picture and all that. A legend had it that St. Helena, Constantine's mother, had transported the 28 marble steps from Jerusalem to Rome in 326, and that the steps had originally been the ones leading to the Praetorium of Pilate, that Jesus had walked on them during his final hours. As Luther ascended the Scala Sancta or Scala Palati on his knees, as pilgrims were wont to do, kissing each step as he went, he arrived at the top and exclaimed, it is believed, I wonder if it is so. For years, he had done everything that the medieval believer could do to earn God's favor, and far from bringing him confident, confidence about his eternal destiny, it had brought him to despair. Experiencing this despair in the midst of great spiritual achievement probably contributed to Luther's later contrastingly cavalier attitude towards sin. His famous, be a sinner and sin on bravely, he would say. Now, of course, he would go on to qualify that and say, but we have stronger, but have stronger faith and rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. One can't help but hear the tremendous relief in Luther's tone. It is no longer about what he is doing, about what he is doing. It is all about Christ. Now, unfortunately, within Protestantism, this has sometimes been taken to extremes and allowed for easy believism. This was not Luther's intent. He would be the last to want to take Christ's death on the cross for granted. His entire theology centered on the cross. A theology of the cross was what he became known for. He would bring everything back to the feet of the crucified Christ. But because of that, he was able to experience the joy of knowing that his sin had been paid for in full, that he no longer had to spend every waking moment placating God. But before he got to that place, that wonderfully safe theological place, he would spin deeply down into depression. Luther's disappointments, this brings us to story number six, and his struggles to earn God's favor eventually dragged him into what he would call his Anfechtungen, a deep despair. 
Staupitz, a wonderful man, uh, his confessor at the monastery, encouraged him to study the scriptures and to teach them at the new university that Frederick the Wise was establishing. It's kind of fun to think that the Reformation was caused by depression, uh, how God uses us even in our weaknesses. For out of this depression-driven study by Luther came at least two of the foundational tenets of the Reformation. We're going to examine the first one here, sola scriptura, uh, in relation to this story event. And we need to go back a, a bit to Augustine for a moment. And I want to spend a bit of time in this section, since sola scriptura and the shift in hermeneutics is so fundamental to our understanding of how to interpret the scriptures, that big story that I keep referring to. Augustine had turned away from Christianity initially because the scriptures didn't fit with his preconceived, rhetorically formed ideals for good literature. After he had read the book Hortensius that had told him to pursue wisdom, uh, and he set out to pursue wisdom, the very first thing he did was to turn to the scriptures. And he read enough of them from, by now, a very sharp, rhetorically trained mind. And he read enough of them through that lens to dismiss them as bad literature. And we need to be very careful that we look at the scriptures through proper lenses and not measure it along sort of artificially human-constructed ways of measuring whether something is good or not. Uh, and, and unfortunately, uh, Augustine did that, and it made him reject Christianity initially. Rhetoric had drawn him back through Ambrose, whose preaching lived up to rhetorical standards. So it ended up helping him as well in the end. Another reason he had been alienated from the Christian scriptures was his negative impression of the God of the Old Testament. And many people stumble at this point today, don't they? They tend to stereotype the Old Testament God as being a God of anger and wrath, and they don't like him, and, and so then they dismiss him which closer reading of the scriptures, I hope you found, uh, shows not to be the case. Uh, God is a God slow to anger and full of compassion all throughout the Old Testament, not just the New. But he couldn't handle the stories of God's anger. Ambrose's preaching helped him here as well. Augustine explained, I was delighted to hear Ambrose in his sermons to the people saying, as if he were most carefully enunciating a principle of exegesis, the letter kills, the spirit gives life. Now, allegorical interpretation was what Ambrose was referring to here, unfortunately. Uh, and it gave Augustine a kind of a strange solution to his dilemma. Uh, the literal interpretation was the letter, and the spiritual one was the allegorical one uh, at that time period. Thus, Augustine's problems with the scriptures, solved by Ambrose's exposition and hermeneutic, indirectly led to the popularity of the multi-layered interpretation of the Middle Ages, which had already been present before Augustine, but because of Augustine's great um, popularity and impact on the Middle Ages became really embedded. This allowed for a variety of elements to be added to doctrine that were not strictly biblical, at least not on the plain meaning level. 
And when we look at medieval theology and practice, lay practice, and wonder how in the world did the Church of Christ get, you know, into so many of these things that as Protestants we would look at and think that doesn't look like it really fits with the Bible. Part of that is because of the hermeneutic uh, that was held, that uh, you interpreted the Bible according to multiple levels, and the allegorical level in particular allowed for some very interesting interpretations um, of the Bible, and also required that the uh, epistemological framework be different, and that was that it was not the scriptures alone that were looked to as the ultimate authority. Uh, as Protestants, by definition, we ha- hold to sola scriptura, so we measure everything, and I believe we measure rightly um, by measuring against the scriptures. Uh, we measure everything against the scriptures, but In the Middle Ages, coming out of Augustine and the other church fathers, the ultimate authority was not the scriptures, it was the church itself. And that meant that not only scriptures were regarded as authoritative in Revelation, but other sources could as well be considered authoritative, including ecumenical councils, papal decrees, etc., And so that meant that things that were not strictly in the scriptures could become part of the church's practice. Now, a third problem, uh, and this, since we're talking about scriptures, uh, put a little piece of of, uh, medieval liturgical writing up there. Third problem had to do with the inaccessibility of the scriptures to the laity. The laity, as a rule, were not allowed to have the scriptures in the vernacular. Tell me in detail what your hermeneutic is as you approach uh, sola scriptura, would you be able to give me a detailed account of exactly how it is that you approach the scriptures, what the principles are that you use to interpret the big story? And to to help you with that task, because I think it's one of the important tasks while you're here at seminary uh, at Divinity School, is to figure out what your hermeneutic is, because that is going to be fundamental to your ministry as you go out how is it that you are going to be interpreting the scriptures? And here the, the Beeson faculty uh, can help you with that. And I'll give you a little case study uh, on Luther so that you can, as I list through some of the things that Wood, uh, in a particularly cogent article, summarizes about Luther's approach to the scriptures, listen to each of these different points and see which ones you agree with and which ones you disagree with, and that will help your mind to, to think a little bit about what your particular hermeneutic is. How do you approach the scriptures? Luther clearly had a high view of the authority of the scriptures. Uh, The entire scriptures are assigned to the Holy Ghost, he says. Or, quote, the Holy Scriptures did not grow on earth. Or, the Holy Scriptures have been spoken by the Holy Ghost. Luther stated, quote, if God does not open and explain holy writ, none else can understand it. It will remain a closed book enveloped in darkness. He considered the Holy Spirit to be essential to the interpretation of Scripture. Prayer was thus the first essential step in exegesis. One's own study, talent, reasoning, etc. were inadequate. Reason should not elevate itself above the Scriptures, but was helpful if it submitted to them. Scripture must be lived out, not manipulated for one's own ends. And it can best be understood by those who experience it, not by those who merely speculate upon it. 
Yaroslav Pelikan refers to this as a, quote, congruence of experience and exposition in Luther. Luther argued against the multi-layered, mystical, and mysterious interpretations of the medieval church. Quote, there is not on earth a book more lucidly written than the Holy Scriptures, he announces. Compared with all other books, it is as the sun compared with all other lights. Luther objects to the commentaries which cloud the plain meaning of the Scriptures. The literal sense of Scripture alone, he asserts, is the whole essence of faith and Christian theology. He expressed disdain towards allegory, admitting that he used to allegorize everything. It took him a while to get out of the habit, but he came to eschew it vigorously. This, in fact, uh, was one area where he critiques Augustine, particularly for his allegorical interpretation of Genesis. Scripture should interpret Scripture, the clearer texts illuminating the more difficult ones. The Scriptures as a whole must be taken into account. Proof texting should be avoided. Luther studied words carefully, having learned both Greek and Hebrew. And I understand you have uh, required uh, Greek and Hebrew as we do up at Gordon-Conwell here, which is getting rarer and rarer um, in the United States, but I think is very important. <laughs> Luther wrote a text called The Letter and the Spirit about exegesis, drawing on Augustine, who had written against Pelagius using the same title. Someone had accused Luther in his single level of interpretation, that literal level, uh, of sticking to the letter rather than the spirit, and therefore violating 2 Corinthians 3.6 that says that the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Luther quotes Augustine saying, quote, the letter is none other than law apart from grace. Luther turns it the other way and says that also the spirit is none other than grace apart from the law. So law and gospel is throughout the whole Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, depending on whether one is looking at law or grace in either. The scriptures are Christocentric, that is, they are entirely about Jesus Christ from beginning to end. And they are Christological, that is, there is an incarnational aspect to them. God is speaking through human beings. The scriptures are both fully human and fully divine, as is Christ. In a similar way, he refers to the sacraments. But he is careful to specify that the humanity of the scriptures is not equated with fallibility. Thus, Wood explicates the sola scriptura stance of Augustine. How much of it matched your, your hermeneutic? Did you feel comfortable with a lot of it? Yeah? Or no? No? <laughs> um, so if you don't know your hermeneutic uh, yet, and you can't sort of spell it out in detail, then I encourage you to, to continue to work on that. All right, that brings us then to number seven, which is the door. And here we have a soul from Purgatory Springs. Now, this is where uh, Johann Tetzel showed up. He was an unscrupulous indulgence seller, and he promised absurdly large spiritual rewards for indulgences that were intended to raise money to build St. Peter's in Rome. There was a ditty in German that translated means, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from Purgatory Springs. Luther was outraged that the laity was being exploited to build the Pope's cathedral when the Pope had the power to give the merit from the treasury of merit without charging for it. So he posted the 95 theses on the door of the Schlosskirche, the uh, castle church. Um, that is, of course, the reason why we are gathered in the chapel at this time of the year celebrating the Reformation. It's this particular event that take, is taken as the symbolic uh, moment of the beginning of the Reformation. 
Now, the Mass may have been the most important sacrament to the medieval person, but the one that had the greatest impact on daily life was the sacrament of penance. And it could be argued that it was the one that caused Luther the greatest consternation. During the time of Augustine, the church uh, penance had been a public event. It was a rare thing done only for very serious sins, and it took many years for an individual to go through the process. But by the late Middle Ages, it had become central and applicable to everyone. It shifted from being public to private and from being only for severe offenders to requisite for everyone, required annually for all. It was a three-part process. So the first part was confession. Each person was required to go through the penance sacrament at least once a year. That was during Lent. And you could not participate in the Easter Mass without having gone through it. Now, Luther went far beyond this one-time-a-year thing. And he was confessing all the time to Staupitz. And he was driving Staupitz bananas. And st- <laughs> he was also wearing himself out by his constant attempts to earn God's favor. So uh, this is how I view Luther (laughs) uh, at this time. Uh, He has been living as a monk. He has been going on pilgrimages. He has been confessing his sins over and over and over again to the point where Staupis tells him to stop spending so much time in confession and go out and actually commit some sins. Um, So (laughs) it's a paraphrase. but um, And and so he's, he's basically like this donkey. It's, you know... That's it. He, he's, he's exhausted. And, and the theology also got him all caught up in a twist because there, the scholastics had debated about contrition versus attrition. When you made your confession, you needed to make it with, conf, with contrition, that is, out of love for God. If you made it with attrition, which was from a fear of God or a fear of punishment, then it wasn't as effective although some of the scholastics said that the sacrament itself took it and changed it or whatever. But Luther apparently uh, believed that you had to have this contrition, otherwise the confession would not be effective. But he became more and more afraid of God because he was afraid he wasn't remembering all of his sins and he was, he was terrified of purgatory and hell. And so he more and more hated God. So every time he came to the confession, he hated God more, which meant he had less and less contrition and more and more attrition. And so he just went down and down and down. Uh, and so this, this was also connected then with the doctrine of purgatory, which gave it its, its fire, as it were. And so he was trying to get out of uh, purgatory faster. And uh, so he was in a real mess. And he, therefore, was very open when uh, his confessor, Staupitz, suggested to him, it seems that it was Staupitz who did this, that the phrase in Matthew 4.17 about repentance, uh, penitentium agere, the metanoia, was not to be translated do penance as it had been translated uh, by Jerome, one of the key errors in the Latin Vulgate that had huge theological implications, that instead of it being do penance, it was repent, change, have a change in heart and character, not uh, in ritual or meritorious acts. And this was a huge uh, turning point for Augustine, I mean for Luther, along with the other piece of it um, that would come in story number eight. And this is why we have him posting the 95 theses. And the 95 Theses don't include direct 
explication of the justification by faith doctrine, contrary to what many people believe. Uh, it really majors mostly on this uh, abuse of Ill indulgences, the uh, improper translation of um, metanoia, and the uh, idea of purgatory are dealt with in here. And certainly when Luther posted the 95 Theses, he was not deliberately starting a Reformation. He didn't get up there and go, hammer, hammer, hammer. Okay, this is the day that changes the world. You know, <laughs> we don't even know if he actually hammered the nails into the door. And it's, but it's regarded as most likely that, that he did. But what he was doing was calling for a disputation, a discussion, and a debate, which was a standard thing to do. He did not know that his words would get translated into all these different languages, and because of the invention of the printing press that had happened a bit before, uh, they would get spread all over, and it would start a huge um, kerfuffle, as it were. Now, that brings us then to story number eight, and here we have the cross is empty, and this is the momentous uh, Termer Leibniz, the tower discovery moment. And although historically the 95 Thesis pinned to the door triggered the Reformation, the key theological transition that undergirded the power of the Reformation took place elsewhere. That was in a tower. And in the preface to the Latin edition of 1545, Luther tells the story. And he talks about how he had been a monk that lived without reproach and was deeply depressed and angry with God. And at last, quote, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words in Romans 1, 17. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. He suddenly realized that the righteousness of God was something given to us as a gift from God. This is here. Here is my righteousness given to us, not produced by us. Something that is appropriated by faith, not by works. That Christ had done all the work that was needed on the cross to earn us salvation. And that the cross was empty. That Christ's salvation, uh, was his death was sufficient for us. Now here's where certain aspects of Augustine's writings that had been neglected in the Middle Ages became prominent in Luther's thinking. This is where you have Augustine arguing against Augustine. And Luther read uh, from Augustine's writings and came to see that the doctrine of justification by faith um, was true and to believe in God's forgiveness. So that became the key doctrine, justification by faith, sola fide, through which Luther then would, entire, would interpret the entire big story. That brings us to story number nine. Oh, here's the St. Peter's. This is what had been raised, literally, uh, through the fundraising of um, the indulgences of Tetzel and others. This brings us to authority and ashes. And here we have Pope Leo promulgating a bull of excommunication, the exerge domine, against Martin Luther. And it basically condemned him, and if he did not repent, um, he would be excommunicated, and it gave him a little time to turn around. Well, Luther responded by writing um, against the execrable bull of the Antichrist. Do you think he was uh, <laughs> questioning now whether to <laughs> stand strong or not? Um, and on the day of the expiration date of the bull, uh, when he would now be fully excommunicated, Luther canceled his classes 
at the Divinity School, as it were, and uh, at Wittenberg. And uh, Melanchthon called together all the university students, and they went out to the Elster Gate. They lit a bonfire. They sang the Requiem Aeternum, and they burned. <laughs> Luther put a copy of the bull in there and burned it and said, As for me, the die is cast. I despise alike the favor and fury of Rome. I do not wish to be reconciled with her or ever to hold any communion with her. Let her condemn and burn my books. I, in turn, unless I can find no fire, will condemn and publicly burn the whole pontifical law, that swamp of heresies. All right, so uh, pretty strong words now. And uh, he no longer wished to remain in the medieval Catholic Church. Initially, he did not want to leave the Catholic Church. That was not what he set out to do. But he was very much pushed out uh, and in the end turned then um, away from the medieval church. This uh, event, number nine, is a significant reason why Protestantism is separate from Roman Catholicism today and why Protestants would not uh, or do not submit to papal authority. Uh, sort of a key moment in Luther's life that captures that. That brings us to the next story, the Diet of Worms, which sounds t- very distasteful, a Diet of Worms. Um, but, of course, you know that's not literally what it is. <laughs> it's a German. Um, now, just as Augustine had allowed the state to intervene with the Donatists in the matter of schism, now the medieval church was routinely calling on the state to intervene in matters of heresy. And the stakes were higher, uh, burning at the stake, to be precise. This did not scare off Luther, however, and he went uh, to the Diet of Worms where his life would be in danger. And there he is asked to recant his writings, and he refuses. And this is where he makes that famous speech that uh, I am not able to retract, nor do I want to do anything that goes against my conscience, no matter how safe or complete it may be. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. Now, although this episode doesn't add new content to the Reformation uh, so much, it certainly has had a profound impact on the tenacity with which the doctrine of sola scriptura is held by Protestants. I think those words ring through our, through our minds. Here I stand, and the stand is standing on the word of God. Story number 11 is where he is taken to the vernacular castle, to Wartburg, and this is where he is hidden away. He's kidnapped benevolently. Um, by arrangement of his protector, and he is hidden away until things are safer. This saved his life. It's probably the reason why the Reformation, or one of them, why the Reformation really took root uh, now through Luther rather than through Wycliffe or Huss, because his protector stood strong long enough to actually protect him. And uh, so the Reformation was able to take root, um, humanly speaking, was God's providence, I would argue, that ultimately caused it to take root at this time. It's while he's here that he translates the scriptures into the vernacular, into German. And this is the part of his story that contributes to the fact that we are studying the big story in our own languages, that we get to read the Bible in our own language. That then brings us to the pickled herrings and uh, wedding bells. We don't know whether the herrings were pickled, um, but <laughs> I, just, I love pickled herrings, so I call them pickled. But apparently, um, and this again is something that, that may be a little bit legendary, Did the, were the women actually in the pickled herring um, or the herring barrels? Were there even barrels in the wagon? Whatever. But uh, what we do know is that some uh, Virgin uh, uh, nuns 
were brought out. It says here, a wagon load of vestal virgins has just come to town, all more eager for marriage than for life. God grant them husbands, lest worse befall. Uh, This was a student, (laughs) one of Luther's students, writing about what had happened. When Luther arranged for sisters in a nearby convent to escape through being taken out in a wagon, um, either in or like empty barrels, Luther at first refused, and this is, again, not a photograph of an actual woman that was rescued, but uh, this is just to evoke the idea. And uh, he at first refused to marry any of them because he believed that he would die as a heretic at any moment, and he didn't want to leave behind a family or a wife. And he found husbands for all of them except one, Catherine von Bora, and he tried to marry her off on several occasions. And she jokingly suggested that she would be willing to marry him. He was 42 at the time and beyond the usual age that men married. After thinking about it, he decided to go ahead with it, even though he was not at the time in love with her. But he would later come to love her deeply and said of her, I would not exchange Katie for France or for Venice because God has given her to me and other women have worse faults. So, <laughs> so <laughs> now in this story event, Luther actually could be argued to deliberately shape his life story intentionally to make and model a theological point. And that is that monasticism is no longer the highest way, um, that actually marriage is a good thing, and that celibacy is um, no longer something that is required of those that want to be absolutely serious um, about Christ, although outside of marriage it is still required, so <laughs> just to be clear. Um, now, uh, so this is interesting. How, how far would you be willing to shape your life story in order to uh, make a theological point? Now, another way to talk about it is, is how serious are you about practicing what you preach? We do really need to shape our stories to match our theology, don't we? Uh, at least uh, on the day-to-day level. Now, uh, that brings us now then to our final point here, now that we've looked at the twelve. And we'll look back now at the big picture of Luther and Augustine's life stories. Um, To put it in story terms, Luther's life story interpreted the Bible story in a new way. It made the point of the big story that the protagonist, that is Christ, had taken care of everything in the climax. Therefore, faith in him and in his actions in the big story is enough. That's the sola fide. And the uh, big story was the ultimate authority on life. That's the sola scriptura, the two key doctrines that come out of the Reformation and out of his life. Augustine's life story had modeled a very different approach. The bride, the desired object produced by the protagonist of the big story, was the ultimate authority on life. And the big story was something that had to be lived up to. Luther's life story turned Augustine's life story on its head. And the world Augustine's life had built the platform for was the world that Luther rejected. Ironically, using much of Augustine's theology that had shown up in Augustine's writing, but not so much in the shape of his life. So the most fundamental shifts that Martin Luther's life story brought about were the shifts in how the big story should be interpreted and how prominent a role it should play in epistemology, sola fide, sola scriptura. And we live in the Protestant world that his life story built. But we also live in a broader world marked by a philosophy deeply mistrustful of big stories, of meta-narratives, of any narrative that claims superiority or absolute truth. It also refuses to believe that texts have an inherent meaning or that it is possible to figure out what an author intended. And here we are believing that there is a meta-narrative, what gall we have, (laughs) um, and that it is true and that the scriptures capture it faithfully. 
and that it is possible to understand its meaning enough to make an eternal difference in one's life. And yet we must acknowledge, as we look at Augustine and Luther and their significantly different interpretations and applications of the scripture text and the larger meta-narrative, that we as human beings are highly influenced by our cultures, our time periods, our personal experiences, by our stories, both the stories we hear and the stories we experience. In light of this, how do we prevent ourselves from succumbing to the despair of relativism? Well, first, as an evangelical Protestant, I have to admit that I think we have a better chance of getting at the truth by limiting ourselves to sola scriptura. We are much less likely to add things to the gospel if we are sticking to the texts whose authority was verified by Christ, whether through his putting his imprimatur on them, as he did with the Old Testament, or through being written by witnesses to him, or at least while those witnesses were alive and able to testify to their authenticity and accuracy. But secondly, we need to be careful not to view sola scriptura as an excuse to proceed in my Bible, Jesus, and me fashion. Nor in the way some contemporary theologians are proposing, are we to retreat into our own subgroups or tribal communities and as small cultural groups each develop our own temporary biblical interpretations. Instead, we need to draw on the larger body of Christ across the last two millennia and around the world. We have the advantage of being able to learn from the mistakes and successes of Augustine and Luther and so many other figures from the history of the church. We do not have to interpret the scriptures only within the culture we inhabit. We can learn to identify our own blind spots by allowing the light of other times, cultures, and thinkers to shine on us. We shouldn't start from scratch, but rather build on the strengths of the last 2,000 years and our brothers and sisters around the world and try to avoid the weaknesses. That way we are less likely to fall victim to the distorting impact of the contemporary stories we hear and the emotional experiences we endure. We have the historical and global church to draw on. Let us take the best of all that and use it to get closer and closer to the full truth of the scriptures. What an adventure. Do you realize what an extraordinary privilege it is to be able to study the scriptures ourselves? To hold Bibles in our own hands, in our own language. To engage in exegesis and theology and hermeneutics and so on. And because Christ has paid for our sins completely on the cross, we don't have to be terrified of not getting it all precisely right. The scriptures are clear enough that a young child can grasp them and be saved. And yet, they are profound and challenging enough that theologians and biblical scholars and preachers and Bible study teachers have examined it in depth for over two millennia and have not yet fully plumbed its depths. We cannot master the scriptures. We cannot exhaustively analyze the story. It is far beyond the complexity of Shakespeare, and yet perspicuous enough to save souls. How did God do it? Isn't it amazing? Now, as we close, I've put together a a little piece to the music, uh, I Will Sing the Wondrous Story, sung by Hugh Priday, the marvelous Welsh tenor. Almost all the slides are from Israel and nearby. And as you look at it, let us praise the Lord for the story that he has written, that he has lived, and that he is uh, having us live as a part of the wondrous story that he calls us to sing about. Of all the stories in the world, that is the only one that can save souls. May you proclaim it with boldness. In Jesus' name, amen.
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.